to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Laura Papano begins her latest book by pointing out that public schools are places where people from all backgrounds and circumstances have come together to learn. These schools have played an important role in American society as places for community building where everyone is welcome, and 90% of American children attend them. Public schools have been nonpartisan gathering places for over a century, but in recent years, things have changed and they've become a source of cultural and political war. The book, School Moms, Parent Activism, Partisan Politics and the Battle for Public Education is published by Beacon Press, and it brings award-winning journalist and author Laura Papano to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Leonard. Well, I'm excited to have you. This is an important book. You've written about K-12 and higher education for over 30 years. Was there something specific that led you to begin writing this book? Well, as I say in the opening, is I didn't want to write the book. I didn't plan to write the book. But when I started hearing and seeing all that was happening around the country, um, that was actually not about education I and a misunderstanding and a misreading of what happens in schools. I felt really compelled to talk about it because I have been in hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of classrooms over this time. And what I was hearing did not jive with, you know, what I understood. You say well-funded and well-organized far-right actors are using our public schools as a platform to gain political power. And in what ways? Well, absolutely. I mean, as you said at the top of the show, I mean, schools have been a place where everyone was welcome. And you, I mean, as a mom myself in public schools, as a student in public schools, I never knew what anyone's politics were. You'd be on the sidelines of games. You'd be, you know, baking goods for the, you know, teacher appreciation breakfast. And nobody asked, you know, what your political beliefs were. And what I have noticed is that that's that's changed, and um, and I think it is hurting our communities. I've heard from, you know, parents who can no longer support certain activities at their schools because the quote unquote other parents are doing that, and it's a real uh, loss to our sense of community because public schools are the place where we kind of put those things aside and really just focused on supporting our community, our children, Us. and what has happened is that um, the far right has discovered what we all kind of long recognize that public schools touch nearly everyone and that this is a wonderful uh, vehicle as they've discovered to, you know, to try to gain power and uh, gain political power by disrupting what was a kind of nonpartisan space. How successful have they been so far? Well, I mean, it. it I mean, they, in, in the disrupting piece, I think rather successful. The the fact that a lot of our conversations locally, nationally, you know, in school board meetings are about these kind of culture war issues is really a, a signal that they're they're they've successfully you know fed some sense of disruption and. Um, it doesn't mean that they're accurate. In fact, most of the things that you know you hear are just simply not true. I mean, teachers are not trying to change the gender of your child. Um, libraries do not c- collect pornography. 
Mm. So, uh, you know, and yet it's very easy to frame these things um, in a kind of scary way that gets parents who may not, um, and, and others who may not fully understand what happens in schools, riled up and concerned, you know, and, and to their benefit. Well, how different is this from concern in the past? Uh, headline in the 1947 issue of Ladies Home Journal was, Our Schools Are in Danger. And a story titled Schools in Trouble was in the February 1971 issue of Parents Magazine. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the, um, you know, things that I've noticed is, and, and I, you know, found those at the at the Harvard libraries, and is that we have always been concerned about our public schools. And, the, but the concerns are, are a little bit different in that we've always worried about how, you know, how well our children learning to read, how are, how is math going Um are our kids graduating? Are they completing high school? What are the graduation rates? We we worry too about funding. Um, you know, should proper how much should property tax determine? You know, your per pupil expending in a district. But those concerns are different than what we're hearing now. And what specifically what I'm talking about is that those concerns are about the substance of school. They're about how we carry out the task of educating each and every child and giving every everyone who enters, you know, a, a fair shot at a good education. Um, yes, there have been problems, and this is what the conversation has been about. But more recently, we're not talking about how do we help children succeed. We're talking about should we have public schools? Mm-hmm. And that's a very different conversation. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. What did it mean for public education? Well, the, it was a really key um, piece of legislation. It was the beginning, and it, it and that piece of legislation was the kind of um, you know key authorizing uh, law that you know has it, every time it's reauthorized by Congress changes its name. Um, but the point of it was. And, and he said when he spoke to Congress that, you know, the goal here is that every child, no matter their wealth, their background, where they live, deserves access to a high quality public education. No matter the how challenge, poor of the course, family. No matter how poor the family, they, no matter how, where they live. Whether exactly. How great their, their handicap and color of their skin. Exactly. That, that is the language. Thank you. And that, um, you know, that is a, that is the great promise of public education. Have we 100% succeeded? Absolutely not. And that's the conversation that we ought to be having right now. How do we do the messy work of educating children who come from very different circumstances, very different home situations, very different abilities and needs? How do we give everyone a good public education? But that's not what we're having happen right now. Right now, we're having a, a battle over things that really are not about the substance that you just cited right there. But isn't just 8% of school funding coming from federal sources? Uh, public education is primarily a state and local responsibility. So did it really matter what Lyndon Johnson thought at the time? 
Well, well I think what's what, really well, what important. What Joe Biden yeah. thinks at the to, currently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there there are a couple layers there. Yes, uh, public education is primarily a state and local uh, task. Um, it, it, especially when it comes to funding. The federal government's 8% um, uh, spending, though, does come with some rules and safeguards, including protections for students with special needs and disabilities. And um, there are, uh, there are, you know, the Title IX regulations, which are, have become really quite critical in many school districts. That's, that, those are all federally driven um, rules. So the idea that um, it's, you know, the federal government has some sway, and we've seen over the last several decades that uh, kind of change. Um, there, there was, you know, with no child left behind, much maligned now, um, that was the first time when there was real kind of focus on um, kind of testing in in a in in a in a kind of now many people feel excessive way. But the you know the the impetus behind it was that kind of promise of we need to make sure that everybody is getting um, what they need. On the other hand, what I've seen over my career is that education has gone from being about the process to about outcomes. And I think we probably have tipped too far on the outcomes end of it. But um, again, that's, um, it, you know, public schools, because they are um, local state um, enterprises, that's where the school board comes in. And that's why we've had such um, really intense battles at the school board level, because, uh, you know, school boards, you know, do not necessarily have to be involved in all of the culture issues. And yet many are choosing to because they are being, um, you know, we're having, we have a number of cases across the country where uh, school boards have been taken over by far right um, uh, uh, candidates, uh, school board members who have been funded by, you know, national and uh, groups and, you know, and, and you know, as Steve Bannon said at CPAC two years ago, he said, the school board is the key that picks the lock. And what he meant and elaborated in another interview was that this is how they're going to, quote unquote, take back hmm. America, you know, town by town, district by district. So what the revelation for the far right was, was, you know, if you control the school board, you can control what happens in schools. You can you you can control you know the whether or not schools even exist. So you know that's that's what we're seeing happen yeah. is this um, you know this this targeting of school boards. Which I mean, as someone who covered educate has covered education for a very long time, I've watched more school board meetings in the last you know eighteen months than I did in the first you know twenty x years of covering school boards just because they have become the spaces where these things are playing out. We'll come back to the school boards in a moment, but I was wondering why you chose the title School Moms for your book. What role does gender play in this story, and don't fathers also play a role? Oh, of course fathers play a role, but um, and grandparents and citizens were concerned, but I called it School Moms because what I was seeing around the country were moms who were already kind of 
involved in school, in some cases not involved in school, coming together because they felt compelled to push back against these far-right attacks. And yes, Moms for Liberty is the uh, is the other moms group that was that's you know perpetrating some of this but i didn't i wasn't ready to kind of seed moms to moms for liberty because there are so many moms who are out there on the ground every day uh, working for schools and they have been and they've been largely invisible and i think the gender piece here is that mother's labor is is largely ignored or disregarded it's in a way it doesn't kind of factor into people's kind of visible, tangible view of kind of what counts as, as you know, impactful. And yet, um, whether it's, you know, organizing wrapping paper fundraisers or, the, or school trips or um, teacher appreciation breakfasts, moms are highly involved in public schools and in their children's education. And they bring a tremendous amount of expertise. And, you know, many moms hold jobs outside the home and many, are, you know, do, are, you know, for a period of their careers may not hold jobs outside the home. And what I have long objected to is the idea that that's a blank space on people's resume. You know, I once had a mom um, uh, ask me to have coffee because she wanted to kind of re-enter the workforce after taking some time off. And I was just struck by how um, timid she felt about her own skills. And that stuck with me because, you know, the moms who are organizing on the ground now, oh my gosh, you networking, You said details. they pay a motherhood penalty. Yes. Well, that's a well-known kind of uh, research uh, piece. Um, is that women have this uh, face a motherhood penalty. And uh, Sari Kerr at uh, Wellesley Centers for Women um, has done a lot of research on this that that notices that, you know, when women are are out of the workforce doing child caring, that they um, they in essence um, suffer in their, you know, in, in their uh, pay and their advancement. That catches up later on, but it's 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 really striking to me that we don't value what women are doing. It's kind of invisible work. My guest is Laura Papano, P-A-P-P-A-N-O. Her latest book, School Moms, Parent, Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education from Beacon Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You point out that even before the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote, in some locales, women could vote and be elected to school boards. And haven't parent-teacher associations relied on mothers to organize fundraisers to pay for playground upgrades, school trips, classroom supplies, and the like? Yes. I mean, there's a, I, there is a lo long and wonderful history of, um, I mean, what, what you're citing is back before women even did have the right to vote. Um, there there, was, a, there was, a, was an understanding that women's quote unquote natural role as mother gave them in a sense entree into having um, a voice around issues that involve children. And that, in, that extended to, as we, you know, as common schools were created in neighborhood schools, that uh, that extended to um, schools. And and one of the wonderful things that I 
found when um, researching um, this was old um, child welfare magazines from you know early uh, 20th century in which um, women sought to extend the home, not just, um, you know, to, not only to the schools and they sought to make schools more quote unquote home-like, but there was one very um, uh, uh, leader in Wisconsin who was very ambitious and, and sought to, you know, urge women to extend the home throughout the world so that, it, that they could gain even more kind of authority and, and voice. But what's really um, what's really striking is that um, be, women have used that expertise um, as as mothers um, to to have a, have a have a voice. I mean, it was moms who pushed for child labor laws, who pushed for school nutrition, um, you know, and and and, and immunizations. So, and if you read these old um, uh, you know, magazines from, you know, the early 20th century, there are reports from every, from all the states that kind of chronicle the efforts made to raise money to buy clothes because some children did not attend school because they didn't have clothes to wear, or there is money raised for milk because children needed nutrition. So it's, it's, um, you know, there was a whole, um, you know, problematic piece in that sometimes women, some of these groups could be a little, you know, overbearing. And also they, you know, were, you know, worked almost, uh, they, you know, breezily ignored the kind of challenges um, of, you know, black mothers and the, and, you know, Selena Butler from Atlanta, um, who has had organized, you know, kindergartens and was speaking to conferences ahead of the White House. And, and that, you know, in the South, especially um, the Rosenzweig schools, you know, moms were not only kind of organizing food, they were actually having to, you know, figure out how to build the schools and fill them with the, the you know, the supplies and the needs. So there was, there has long been a kind of parallel, um, you know, kind of segregated education. I think we're seeing some of that impetus um, kind of return now. And I think that some of these efforts, the white Christian nationalism is about this kind of quest for segregating uh, public education. And we can talk more about that you when know, we talk about vouchers. Well, you, but, mentioned, um, but, Mo you mentioned Moms for Liberty, which was founded in 2021 in Florida. They call itself themselves a, a parents' rights group, also active, active in New York, in fact, in Queens. Um, in Pennsylvania and the Carolinas, they oppose critical race theory, want to restrict curriculum about black history, the teaching of black authors. They want to block LGBTQ-focused books and block the teaching of gender identity. So I'm assuming that school librarians have been affected by these political pressures. Oh, absolutely. You just listed a whole host of things there, Leonard. <laughs> um, that, well, uh, you could go on and, and go through them. <laughs> so, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we can, you know, we can talk about libraries. We can talk about the restrictions. I mean, you can take any one of those things. And, um, you know, what, you, what you're hearing in all of that is an effort to, you know, kind of control 
um, you know, the conversation in schools and control the, you know, who feels welcome in schools. I mean, what's you cited at the top of the show, the fact that 90% of, you know, kids in this country go to public schools. So we need them to work. And we also have to recognize that, you know, in 1986, 70% of those public school students were white. By 2020, that figure was 47%. And by 2030, according to federal statistics, you know, projections, that's going to be 43%. So our schools look very different and include very different students than they did even just a few decades ago. And the fact, I mean, political or not, um, just on a practical level, an economic level, we need to educate everyone. We need to make everyone feel as if they belong and can, you know, and can participate in our society because this is our future. So the idea of targeting certain students, certain ideas is an anathema to me, especially if we're going to look at the kind of even just the straight economic and cultural future of this country. Are there, and, you know, are, the, di mm -hmm. are there disagreements over how math or history should be taught about evolution? Um, haven't some dictionaries been banned because they contain words that most of us would just find totally acceptable? Well, I mean, I think what you're pointing out is that, you know, in some districts, in some places, school boards have sought to really um, try to kind of halt, cancel, eradicate anything that they don't agree with. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a whack-a-mole situation. I mean, you cannot erase people and culture. And, um, you know, I guess one of the things I think about is, you know, in, you know, Keller, Texas, right? So you have um, a, a far-right school board that completely changed the way um, books in the libraries uh, were are selected. I mean, mm -hmm. most places, you know, librarians are extremely well-educated people. They have to do a lot of very specific training in order to do their jobs. And, the, uh, you know, the practice is that you have to curate your books to suit your community. It's not just like there's one library list that gets sent out and everybody, every school kind of just signs up and buys all the books and puts them on the shelves. Every librarian is curating and choosing books that they believe will suit their community. And what you had in, you know, in this one community, and certainly not the only place where this has happened, is you have, you know, school boards then bypassing the professionalism of librarians and deciding that, you know what, we are going to approve every single book ourselves. We're going to put it out for review for 30 days, then we will approve every school board, every school book that goes in the library. And I was watching one school board meeting that went on for five and a half hours and a middle school librarian um, stood up and said that what you're doing is, is just an affront basically to the professionalism of librarians. And she said, and the result is that she said, I cannot get books about squirrels or camels or football. Hmm. I cannot get the latest Diary of a Wimpy Kid <laughs> or Guinness Book of World Records without the express approval of the school board. The result is that 
children in the library are coming up to her and saying, where are all the new books? And she said, not being able to get books in a timely manner because they have to go through this Byzantine process. She said, I don't tell them why we're not getting new books in a timely manner. She said, because it's political. That is the reason why this is happening. So it's and not I think just, that that is, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, finish your thought. No, 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 you go ahead. Uh, so, but it's not just school boards, hasn't, uh, haven't uh, some politicians, Ron DeSantis uh, pushed through laws in Florida that uh, banned the teaching of critical race theory and other things that were found objectionable. Well, let's talk about critical race theory for a minute. Okay. Um, you know, it's one of the things is that, uh, you know, in the book, I, I really, I you know, critical race theory is a graduate level concept used to, to make sense and parse how the law works with regard to race. It really has nothing to do with the history lessons that happen in K-12 schools at all. But what happened is Christopher Rufo, you know, a, a conservative activist, and he was very plain on Twitter. He said, we are going to take this phrase and we are going to imbue it with all kinds of negative vibes so that when people see CRT, they'll just load onto it all the things that make them upset. And as and he was very successful. I mean, he called it a you know he described it as a branding exercise, and it succeeded. So now it's we we say CRT CRT. I honestly, when we're talking about CRT in public schools, I just have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. What is it that we can and can't say about race? And I know that legislation in Texas and 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 a few other places in in Tennessee have really worked to kind of define it as making anyone feel, any white child, any child feel uncomfortable. I mean, how can you predict or understand what's going to make someone feel uncomfortable? And why are we just worried about white kids feeling uncomfortable? What about those percentages of students of color who want to feel that they exist? I mean, my experience as an education journalist and working with students in grades three through eight to run a school newspaper are that you don't learn because someone tells you to learn. You learn because you feel that you can be part of the conversation in the classroom. You feel that you matter, that you are seen, that you have something at stake. And what we're trying to do now with some of this legislation is try to somehow, quote unquote, protect the feelings of certain children when we're not even sure they feel that way. And it's not just groups like uh, Moms for Liberty, but also Parents Defending Education, uh, educating against CRT, but also against the pressing for don't say gay laws and asserting right. parental rights to gain control over the review of, of classroom materials. The don't say gay rights uh, laws, how would they work? Well, see, the anti-LGBTQ, and there's so many versions of whether we're talking about don't say gay or we're talking about, uh, you know, and that's, a, you know, in Florida statewide, uh, you know, K-12 now, um, or we're talking about local school boards who are uh, passing anti-LGBTQ 
policies that say that, you know, you can't have a pride flag, you can't, um, you know, what you're doing is you're giving permission to people to harass students, LBGTQ plus students. And what you're doing is you're creating a very dangerous and difficult environment for those students to learn. I mean, how I, I sat down with some students in Pennsylvania and they said after these policies passed in their district, they would walk down the hallway between passing periods and have people shouting at them mm. and harassing them every single period of every single day. I mean, I'm not sure how learning happens when that's going on. So if so, I, I I don't understand what the goal, the educational goal, of trying to exclude, single out, and harass or permit harassment of certain students furthers our kind of collective goal of educating our students. When CNN asked the Moms for Liberty chapter chair in Colorado Springs if she believed there was some kind of high-level coordinated effort to make more children trans and gay, she said there is. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's outrageous, I even, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that is just, I mean, it's so absurd. As I, I don't even know how to respond to that because um, it, it simply is, uh, you know, teachers. And, you know, I have a daughter who is a school principal in, in Texas. And her main concern is making sure that her children in gray, you know, learn to read and to write and that she wants all the children to feel seen, heard, and that they belong, that they matter. Because ultimately, as I just said a moment ago, education doesn't happen to you. You must engage. And if we're, if we're excluding kids, they're not engaging. The idea that there's some, you know, coordinated cabal is just the most ridiculous thing in the world. And, you know, I, I know that we hear and we'll hear probably even more about it, you know, during this legislative session across the country, but parental rights or parents' rights. I, it, this, the flag of, parent, of parents' rights is, is, is a, it, it is just a distraction because parents have always had rights. And parents, not, and forget about rights, what about influence? Parents have profound influence over their children. The idea that we need parental rights laws in mm -hmm. our states in order to ensure that parents have, you know, can, you know, be in charge of the upbringing of their children is absolutely yeah. absurd. Obviously, my parents' views influence the way I see the world. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, and I guess here's a case in point is I did a story for the Hackinger Report and Vanity Fair in North Idaho. And on election day, just a few months ago, I was um, in Priest River and I sat down with a dad of eight and his Facebook profile has an American flag and the Second Amendment behind him. Hmm. And yet we sat in this coffee shop, you know, across from the junior high and he said, the idea that teachers are indoctrinating my children, he said, is paranoid bull honky. He said, as a parent, I'm very involved in my children's lives and education. He builds pole barns. 
and he wakes up and starts his day at 4.35 a.m. so that by afternoon, he can attend his children's sports practices. And he said, I, if my kids come home with something that I don't agree with or don't, or they don't understand, or he said, we talk about it. He said, the idea that they're going to, that there's not going to be stuff that I disagree with. Of course, there's going to be things that I disagree with, but that doesn't mean we can't have a conversation. And it also doesn't mean that I'm not more, more involved in their thinking and they're growing than teachers. And, you know, the, he said, it's absolutely absurd. He said, it's my job as a parent to kind of be involved in that. It's not, you know, he said, the, the, this is how the world works. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Laura Papano. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, School Moms, Parent Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education. Uh, it, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London located at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Laura Papano. Her book, School Moms, Parent, Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education, is from Beacon Press. She's a writer in, in residence at Wellesley, and she has written uh, about education for newspapers and written three other books as well. Um, have I left anything out? No, Leonard. I think you that that's probably more than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the um, Moms for Liberty held a, a town hall on New York's Upper East Side last Thursday. And according to the education publication Chalkbeat, protesters at the event may have outnumbered the participants. They were carrying signs reading, Mom Against Fascism, Queer People Have Kids Too, and Read Banned Books. So the fight is uh, is affecting public education in New York City as well. I saw some clips of that. Um, yes, it was quite quite a prodigious protest, and I think you're seeing that in a lot of places. I mean, um, but I, I went to both Moms for Liberty summits so far. The first one in Tampa in uh, June of 2022, and I was in Philly for the Moms for Liberty uh, summit in July, and there was. There are quite a lot of protests in Philly, as as one would expect. And um, you know, and I spent time talking with protesters as well as attending, you know, all of the Moms for Liberty events. I mean, you you pointed out earlier they're not the only group. Um, they've been a very visible group, but there are groups around the country who have kind of picked up their arguments and their language. And that's the one thing that they have. 
um, you know, they've, they've created a kind of a, you know, a, a, a lexicon for talking about, um, you know, their objections, which resonate with some parents and some parents who don't, who just buy into the whole, you know, you know, bit of misinformation. Uh, but parents, I think, are wising up. I mean, what, what's interesting is that it did take a while. They kind of got a head start. I was speaking with Liz Mkhitaryan, who founded Stop Moms for Liberty in Brevard County, which is um, where Moms for Liberty first started. And she said at first, and she's a you know veteran teacher, I think 24, 26 years as a teacher. And she said, at first she said, we didn't take their you know, accusations and their charges you know, seriously because they were just so absurd. Well, they were fall, affiliated asked, with groups like the Proud Boys. Oh, absolutely. Yes. They're, you know, they're, it's, they're extremists. And, and that's another thing I want to point out, um, you know, while you, you know, brought it up is that there is nothing wrong with conservative values. There's nothing wrong with Republicans. In fact, many, you know, people in my book are Republicans, but what we're, the, the, the challenge is with the far right and extremists. And that's what we're seeing in the in Moms for Liberty is an extremist group, and they are connected to other extremist group, and they are seeking to really wreak havoc on public schools. And to the credit of a lot of other moms and people like Liz Mkhitaryan, Red Wine and Blue, you know, out of uh, Ohio, and uh, groups on the ground like in uh, you know Bucks County, Advocates for Inclusive Education. There are groups all over the country who of moms who have, you know, organized and pushed back. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. what you're what you saw with the protest, you know, at the Moms for Liberty conference in Philly and you saw last Thursday in New York is parents saying kind of enough of this harassment because it's just it is it is so painful to watch, you know, but, the. the mm -hmm. No, finish your thought. No, I said it's painful to watch the impact this has on children who are trying mm -hmm. to participate in the life of school, because school is not just the curriculum. It's not just what books are in the library. School is about the experience of school. And moms, the far right, are poisoning that school experience. And that makes me so frustrated. But this is not just far right. Uh, establishment Republicans, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley have all spoken at Moms for Liberty events. And, and, there's, yeah, a, I, and there's a Moms for Liberty uh, chapter in Queens, New York. Well, I, I, would, I would argue that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and, uh, you know, have, and Nikki Haley to some degree have, have, you know, they were all at the Moms for Liberty Summit in, um, in Philly. They are the far right. They are, they are espousing extremist views when it comes to public schools and public education. And I don't know, you know, whether it's because politically they think that it, you know, has traction. I think it, it initially got a lot of traction especially after, you know, kind of mid-pandemic and, and right after, because a lot of people were just frustrated and angry. And I think the Moms, Moms for Liberty and other far-right organization extremists gave them, you know, seized on that as a political tool because it'll enable them to, 
you know, channel people's frustration and gain political power. But I, I think that what we're seeing now is people are saying, wait a minute, this is, first of all, this is not happening in schools. This is made up. And the result is that it's affecting and hurting our public education system. It is making light, wreaking havoc on librarians and libraries, on teachers. I mean, it is a very stressful thing in some of these districts to be a teacher who is trying to teach when you have the specter of attack. And it, it really changes the job that you're doing. Your job, most teachers are really only concerned about teaching the children in front of them and supporting them as they learn. Wasn't there a move to slash the budget of the Croydon School Board of New Hampshire by 50%? What happened there? Yes, it was more. So the Croydon, New Hampshire is a really a, a lovely story. And I went up there and... Um, what happened is, you know, it, it's a, it's a very small district as many rural districts in, in places are. And on a snowy, they, they have town meeting, which means, um, you know, I kind of said, it's like a, you know, a, a kind of rugby scrum politically, but you, you go and, uh, resolutions get passed. And on one snowy day, a couple of years ago, um, one of one of the you know far right free staters stood up and uh, made a motion to slash the school budget by over half, which would have basically ended um, public education in the district because the, the school it's a you know it's a just a it's a K um, K five school and after that grade you go to you know you know, other choices, but it would have ended this kind of school that is one of the oldest schoolhouses, you know, in the country. And it was because it was a snowy day, you know, many people didn't make it. And, you know, and so you have what you have in school board elections a lot when far right people are elected to the board, which is the people who voted. And, and there was some reporting that people were confused about what the vote was, um, but but they voted and slashed the budget and everyone was in shock. And then parents who, you know, in Croydon, as in many other districts around the country, people gotten used to the idea that other people would show up and vote and that they didn't really need to be there. Well, these, you know, parents and, you know, citizens got together and started organizing and got on got got enough signatures in order to put a revote on their local town ballot in May and it took this kind of powerful organizing effort um, to do that and I was up visiting them after they had just succeeded in restoring the budget and what was interesting is, it was the, the parents who organized were across all political, you know, the, across the political spectrum. It wasn't, you know, all one, one kind of political party or another. In fact, I didn't even know what political party and some of them didn't know what other political parties their colleagues were from. But what they all believed in was that 
the children in their community deserved a public school. Wow. And and it was a it's a and and one of Ed Stryker, um, Spiker, he was just uh an incredible um he worked three jobs, painting contractor, putting a paraplegic man to bed every night, um, doing work, uh, you know, on his own as well. And he started showing up to video the meetings or stream them online. And he did that because he realized that not everybody was coming to every meeting. So he made it his job to really be involved in uh, letting people know it was happening at all the meetings. And, you know, he's an incredibly kind man. And, and I went to um, uh, actually the home of Hope Damon, who then ran for and won and is now serving in the New Hampshire legislature. Um, so this motivated people's involvement in a really powerful way. But Ed showed up and he, um, sat down and we was outside in the summertime and at a picnic table and he put in front of me a jar of homemade um uh strawberry peach jam you know which which is just such and it reminded me of all the times when i was growing up where you know we would be picking fruit and then my mother would be sending me to the neighbor's house to give them jams and you know and yet ed you know was a you know, is a diehard Second Amendment guy. And at the end of our time there, he lifts up the side of his black T-shirt to reveal that he has a firearm. Mm. And I, you know, being the journalist I am, I said, oh, is that, you know, is, is that, uh, do you have a, you know, is that, con is that concealed carry? Because I wanted to know, mm. you know, do you have a concealed carry permit? But I did forget that I was in New Hampshire he said, no, ma'am. He said, that's constitutional carry. Mm. And it was a reminder to me that we, you know, one, don't judge people, but two, that public schools touch a very wide swath of people from different backgrounds and different experiences, and they matter to people. And Ed is somebody that I've, you know, I, you know, message back and forth with, and he ran, um, he ran for office in, in, in town and, and still holds office. So I give him credit for, um, being so involved in, um, and others, others, many of the others who or helped organize that, that revote now hold office, um, in the community. And of course, Hope Damon in the, in the, in the state legislature. I wanted to uh, bring up, in the short time we still have left, uh, the work of Wellesley Centers for Women's Peggy McIntosh and the SEED Project. Mm. Um, mm. Can you talk about how they shape your thinking about this topic? Well, I mean, I've been involved with Wellesley Centers for Women for a very long time. And Peggy is someone who I have long admired and um, been on panels with and she is just such a beautiful you know welcoming and calm presence and she I visited her I mean so for people who don't know who Peggy McIntosh is she is the one who authored that um the uh the uh unpacking the knapsack of white privilege hmm. and 
she the the whole idea for the essay, which um, is on the Seed website, I believe, um, came Why because she was doing packing the invisible knapsack. Knapsack, yes, yes, um, and she uh, it, it it came about because she was doing some work around gender, and in which she would uh, have professors kind of come for workshops and many of the male professors, and they, this is, you know, several decades ago, uh, and they would be talking about, you know, how can we incorporate more women's scholarship into courses and et cetera. And, and, and through those conversations, you know, there was, when people were all in the room together, everyone would say, yes, 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 what a great idea. And then she said they would go away and come back and um, she would discover that, you know, no changes had been made. And it made her wonder, um, she goes, they seem like very nice men, um, but, uh, you know, what, what, what's going on here? And then it made her think, well, when we're working with, you know, Black women, with women of color, they must feel the same way about us as white people as white women. And she started exploring the idea that not just that because of your skin color, because of your race, that you were at a disadvantage, but she rather looked at the fact that because of her whiteness, that she had some invisible advantages that she received every single day, but was not necessarily aware of, whether it was you know, because uh, you were, you know, if you were pulled over by a police officer, if you were, you know, she knew that it wasn't because she was white. Um, and she has a whole, she listed this, I think there are 24 of them. She made a whole list of the things that, um, of, of things that she perceived were a, for, a form of privilege in her own well, life. I, I want to point out in the last minute we have that a survey by USA Today Ipsos last March found 72% of Americans in support of teaching the ongoing effects of slavery and racism in mm. the United States in public schools. So uh, this right-wing attack is not really affecting public attitudes, it, but it, it, it does have an effect on, on school boards and the like. Is that fair to say? You have a minute and a half. A minute and a half, wow. So, I mean, it... it, it public attitudes really do support, you know, precisely what you found, that the teaching uh, and the inclusion of books and acceptance. But for some reason, the school board, uh, and it's not, it's not some mystery, school boards we have to pay attention to because a lot of these far-right school boards get elected because of low voter turnout. In some races in Texas that I looked at, there's voter turnout of 10%. So with very little effort and a lot of outside money in some cases that heightens name recognition, if we're not careful, you can want see your school board turned into a far right, you know, engine of, you know, the kind of exclusion that you may be very opposed to and that most Americans are. I've been speaking with Laura Papano, her latest book, School Moms, Parent Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education is published by Beacon Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, Leonard, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate it. 
And uh, I'm sad to say that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for her invaluable work in, in preparing this segment. If you're discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access them streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you during these rough economic times. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lobe right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, School Moms by Laura Papano. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. You can do that for $5, 10 15 $20 a month, whatever's comfortable for you. Some people uh, are up to 100 and more. But, and you can do it as long as you wish. And it allows BAI to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listed donations, uh, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, there are other shows on the station that have different would probably disagree with what you've just heard, but that's part of what Free Speech Radio is all about. And if Leonard Lopate at Large is part of your daily routine, uh, and why not keep it going for someone else who is just discovering it? Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. It's tax deductible. And from all of the people at this show and from all of the people at the station, we thank you if you do. 